Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulia University Medical Center. I'm Ronuk. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue down our Hemophilia 101 journey, this time talking about acute management of a patient coming in with a bleed that happens to have hemophilia. I think this is a good way to continue on our series today. We we talked a little bit about in the first episode how to work a patient up if you're concerned for a bleeding disorder. In the second episode, we talked about if a patient does have hemophilia, we defined the severities of hemophilia and how to treat it in the chronic setting. So I'm excited to learn from Dan and have him drop some some more knowledge on us on how to treat the acute management of a patient with hemophilia and eventually acquired hemophilia. Yeah, you know, and this is like, this is really living up to our name, the fellow on call, because this is always the one that you're going to get when you're on call and you're going to have to deal with right away. So excited to talk about it. I can attest to that. I think it was one of my very first calls of starting fellowship was a case very similar to the one that we're going to talk about today in our episode. And I just remember calling the attending and she was doing all sorts of math and dropping numbers in her head. And I was like, I have no idea where any of this is coming from. But now our listeners are not going to have the same issue because we're going to define that in just a moment. So I'm super excited, super high yield. Let's go ahead and roll the show. Let's do it. All right, guys, how are we doing today? Doing good, but but I want to hear how Dan's doing. He uh, he had to pause a session of what he's doing to get to this recording. That's true. Yeah, I had to, I had to kick Logan out to the uh, to the downstairs living room so he could watch the uh, watch the election coverage and not not bother us up here. <laughs> yeah, I I hope that you know all of our listeners have gotten a chance to get out and vote. And I mean, at, by the time this episode comes out, the results should be out. But um, we may even have Arizona's result back by then. Who knows? <laughs> I'll be back in two three weeks. Definitely advocate for all of our listeners, making sure that they exercise their right to vote whenever the next election may be. Um, So I wanted to continue our discussion so that Dan can get back to watching his election coverage soon. Um, In the last couple of episodes, we talked about all the essential workup and, and kind of chronic management of hemophilia. But there are situations, as I'm sure you can attest to, where these patients come into the hospital after some sort of injury and require urgent intervention and factor replacement to prevent them from having life-threatening bleeds. So I was thinking this would be a great time to have that discussion. Are you guys ready? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. All right. So this case was slightly modified from one that I saw on call early on in my fellowship time. This is a case of a 25-year-old male who had come to the ER with really severe back pain after he had fallen off his bike. And he had reported at the time when he got to the ER that he does in fact have hemophilia A. And so the ER had had paged me, I was on call, and I was able to find out that the patient has a baseline factor eight level of less than 1%. So I was hoping we can use this case to kind of guide our discussion. What do we do? How do we approach this patient? Like you said in the intro, this really brings back flashbacks for me on patients when I took my first few call nights. It was, for some reason, a couple of bleeding hemophilia patients. And I remember the first thing that happened when I called the attending on the phone 
she had asked me, did they treat themselves to 100%? And that's the first thing I think we need to talk about in this case is what does it mean for a patient to treat themselves to quote unquote 100%? In the last episode and the for the chronic hemophilias, we talked about if a patient has a spontaneous joint bleed, there will be on lifelong prophylaxis with factor replacement a few times a week to prevent further joint bleeding and joint damage. And we had talked about that that's just to maintain them and make sure they don't have spontaneous bleeding. But in the cases where a patient has an injury and an acute bleed, we tell the patients to give themselves the factor that they already have at home at a certain dose that'll increase their activity from less than 1% up to 100%. And that's all that means is that we can calculate that. And Dan, how do you do that? I know there's a certain way and it depends on if they have hemophilia A or B and what type of product they're using. But in general, what's an easy way to do the weight-based calculation so that we know how much a patient needs to get from to that 100% activity level so they can treat themselves at home? Yeah, the thing I always keep in mind is how much you expect a unit per kilogram of factor replacement medicine to raise their factor activity. And for hemophilia A, it's, it's pretty easy. It's two to one. So you give one unit per kilogram of Advate or whatever factor eight product of your choice, and that'll raise the factor eight activity level by 2%. So a 50 unit per kilogram dose will get somebody from zero all the way up to 100%. 25 units per kilogram will go from zero to 50%. For hemophilia B, it's not quite as straightforward with Benefix, our main factor product. One unit per kilogram can be expected to raise things by about 0.75%. So it's like a 1.3 to 1 conversion. But in other words, if you give somebody 65 units per kilogram, you'll get them up to about 50%. If you give them 130 units per kilogram, you'll get them up to 100%. It's pretty close to one to one. So you can kind of fudge it and just say you know, it's it's a direct uh, direct ratio there. But yeah, technically 1.3 to 1. And then once you know that, you can figure out where you need to go. Because if somebody has a documented baseline factor level, all you need to do is take 100%, subtract out what their baseline factor is, and then give them whatever amount of product you need to get them up to that uh, to that remainder. That's sort of how I go about it. Was that was that reasonably straightforward? Do you feel like that's a, a good framework? So you said for hemophilia A, it is about one unit per kilogram to increase by 2%. And for hemophilia B, it's about one unit per kilogram is about an increase of 0.75 to roughly 1%. And so that's how you're determining how much to give. And and you, I think I want to highlight something that you mentioned there, though, because you said we then are able to dose based on their known factor levels. In this case, we happen to know this gentleman's factor level, or rather, he knew his factor levels. But in a situation where you just know someone has hemophilia, what do you do if you don't actually know what their factor levels are? In that situation, what I learned in my first few nights on call is that you assume that their factor level activity is less than 1%. You don't take that risk in a patient with hemophilia because many times these patients who have a severe bleeding phenotype do have a factor level of less than 1%. We did talk about the cases where the phenotypic presentation doesn't always reflect, reflect that, but in most cases, we are going to assume the patient has a baseline factor level of less than 1%, or in other words, zero. So we try to increase them by 100%. And that is what we do in the case where we don't know their baseline factor level. And like Dan, like Dan had, had laid out, it is 
very simple. You just have to know those those calculations. So again, I just we just want to reiterate this as many times as possible. For hemophilia A, one unit per kilogram of that factor eight replacement will increase the factor activity by two percent. So, for example, if you gave fifty units per kilogram, that gets you to one hundred percent. And if you're doing factor nine replacement, and like Dan said, it's a little bit different. But if you're just wanting an easy way, just remember one to one. So roughly a hundred units per kilogram will get you to one hundred percent. And the other thing that I learned from that first night on call with this patient. The ER had also mentioned that they were going to take this gentleman for a CT scan, and they asked me about essentially the order of operations. And what I had recommended, which I learned from the attending, was give their factor first. Do not take them to go get their scans and all the other stuff that can wait, because the reality is if they have a bleed, they need the factor in their system to prevent the bleeding from getting worse. And as always, the imaging studies are just further supportive. You just have to treat the patient first and ensure that they don't have this life-threatening bleed. Factor first, always. Uh, that's a that's a really good point. You know, I fully support what Vivek was saying as well about just getting a patient up to 100%. Remember that the normal range is between 50% activity and 150% activity. So even if someone is the mildest of the mild hemophiliac, 100% dose is probably not going to push them up over 150% outside of that normal range. So yeah, just just give them a hundred percent replacement for a major bleed or risk of a major bleed, and uh, and then figure out when dust settles. So Dan, how do you go about deciding when to give this patient more? I mean, this guy conceivably has some sort of life threatening bleed. How do you know when the appropriate time to give more factor replacement is, just to maintain those levels high? Yeah, your goal is to keep this person in the in the normal range so between 50 and 150 uh throughout the duration of their their healing from this bleed and so the way i think about it is that over the course of 12 hours i expect a severe hemophilia patient or someone who basically is not producing any of their own factor to drift down by about 50 percent so typically uh, i'll start with a 100 percent replacement dose and then 12 hours after that i'll give them a 50 percent replacement dose in the case of hemophilia A, a 25 unit per kilogram dose. I usually like to check a trough level right before I give that dose, 12 hours after their first. And just that's just a factor eight activity level or factor nine activity level in the case of a, uh, a hemophilia B patient. Remember that if the patient's on emicizumab, this type of monitoring with functional factor eight assays is not possible. It's uh, you'd get an inaccurately high result, like 600% activity, because the emesizumab is basically just going to act like activated factor eight and make it look like there's tons of the stuff in their bloodstream. So oftentimes for folks who are on emesizumab, we go ahead and just empirically dose because they're on it because they're severe factor eight deficiency. They're not going to be making their own. Their kinetics are going to be pretty straightforward. For folks who are mild or moderate hemophilia patients, that's where it's a lot more important to check levels, because oftentimes in the setting of an acute injury or an acute inflammatory event, patients are going to increase their endogenous factor eight production. If you were to check a factor eight on a person in late term pregnancy or immediately after a trauma who doesn't have hemophilia, their levels would be you know, 150, 200%. So you do have to watch patients with milder disease to make sure that you're not getting them to the above the normal range. And that's why this sort of Q12 hour or Q24 hour before the morning dose trough levels are so important. 
I know Ronak, who's the most logical out of all of us, is probably going to ask the next question to keep us on track, which is, hey, guys, how often do we need to dose this? But before Dan goes into a very intelligent rant on how all of this works, I do want to say that we need to define emicizumab one more time. We talked about that in our last episode in the chronic management of hemophilia, and please check that out before this one. But what emicizumab is, is it's a bispecific monoclonal antibody. It essentially brings together factor 9 and factor 10, which allows a clot to form down the common pathway. It's essentially doing what factor 8 normally does. Factor 8 facilitates the handshake between factor 9, the end of the intrinsic pathway, to factor 10, the start of that common pathway. And so even if you don't have factor 8, this emicizumab helps bridge that together, and it's it's a treatment that's used in the chronic management of hemophilia, but it has implications for our patients if they're on it when we think about acute management of their bleeds. And I think one other thing that I wanted to mention was this this concept that really confused me for a, a pretty long time, and that's the idea of a patient who has a quote-unquote inhibitor. So a patient with known hemophilia and the attending asks, do they have an inhibitor? Dan, what can you tell us a little bit about what that means? And then my second question to that is, how would you treat that patient in the case of a concern for a severe bleed? Yeah, inhibitors are a pretty nasty situation. And, and we had referenced this in, a, in an earlier episode. Basically, for patients who don't produce their own factor eight or their own coagulation factor, replacement factor is, as far as their immune system is concerned, a foreign protein. So their immune system can develop an antibody reaction against exogenous factor replacement. When that happens, you can give them all the factor in the world, and unfortunately, that inhibitor is going to basically get upregulated, produced in much higher quantities, and take any of that factor that was available out of circulation. So you really don't want to be re-exposing patients with an inhibitor to exogenous factor. It's not only not going to do anything, but it's just going to make that inhibitor worse. So we do have some ways to bypass that inhibitor, that whole factor eight pathway. And the way we do that is, as I think Vivek had mentioned this in an earlier episode as well, we just try and overwhelm the coagulation system with activated factor seven and just generally infusing them with activated clotting factors. So we have a recombinant product and we have a, a human derived product. Recombinant product is called Novo seven. It's a recombinant activated factor seven product. And that, for a major bleed, uh, for trying to put the brakes on a major bleed, you want to give a, a 90 microgram per kilogram dose. That can be given up to every, you know, between every two and eight hours. Uh, usually, we'll start with a couple of Q2 hour doses just to see how a patient's responding. But again, you can, you can really keep giving it if a patient's having severe bleeding and you just need to get it under control. The older product that we had before Nova 7 is called FIBA, F-E-I-B-A. And it's actually an acronym. It stands for Factor Eight Inhibitor Bypassing Activity. So it's a, um, a human-derived factor that's essentially enriched in activated clotting factors. And that's something we give as an IV infusion every 6 to 12 hours. And you really don't want to go over about 200 units per kilogram per day. One thing that's also important to note with FIBA, in the, uh, in the clinical trials and some of the preclinical data, when patients were on emicizumab, that Libra, that really cool antibody drug that kind of does the job of factor eight, they saw pretty massively increased thrombin generation. And there were some reports of possible thrombotic microangiopathy type physiology going on when patients who are on emicizumab were exposed to FIBA. That seems to be less of a concern with Novo 7. So if you're really in a jam as somebody on emicizumab who's got an acute bleed, 
and has a history of an inhibitor, Nova 7 is probably still an option. But um, yeah, these bypassing agents really do make us pretty nervous if a patient does have emicizumab in their system. And after having talked about the coagulation cascade in the context of, you know, this whole discussion a few weeks ago, I think this finally starts to make sense. And I think it was Vivek that had mentioned, like, you're kind of just overwhelming the factor seven side. So you're, you're activated, you're giving activated factor seven, and then essentially that feeds right into that common pathway, which then develops the, the fibrin generation and thrombin generation and, and you have your clot. And so, so I think, wow, that, that just, I, I can't believe that took this long to click, but it, but it finally clicked. And so I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and the one thing that what I, what confused me for the longest time is people were always just telling me, just use the bypassing agent. And again, we just want to reiterate this here from the three of us. The easiest way to think about this is that you're bypassing the intrinsic pathway. Remember, you either go down the intrinsic pathway, down through the common pathway to get clot, or the extrinsic pathway down the common pathway to get clot, and you're bypassing the intrinsic pathway and forcing clot down that extrinsic pathway. And remember how I teach the coagulation cascade by Alice Ma, lucky number seven. And that's how if you give Novo 7, you will force a clot. But we we could not recommend that, learning the coagulation cascade through her method more. It, it is so helpful and it's critical in understanding how to treat these patients. So in addition to giving factor replacement or some sort of bypassing agent, are there any other things that we can be giving our patients as well just to kind of help them with these acute bleeds? One thing you can do, especially if you have sort of a mucosal site of bleeding, epistaxis, dental bleeding, vaginal bleeding, is use an antifibrinolytic, something like aminocoproic acid or tranexamic acid. These drugs basically prevent or help inhibit the breakdown of that fibrin mesh that's formed. So the idea being if a patient is able to form a clot with some of this replacement factor, these antifibrinolytics will help stabilize that clot, let it do its job for longer. The thing to keep in mind is that you do, at least I always like to check a a urinalysis beforehand before giving these to make sure that the patient isn't having any hematuria the ureters are a highly fibrinolytic site. Uh, that makes sense, right? Because if you had a clot form in your ureter, you would want it to get busted up quickly uh, so that you didn't obstruct your ureter and, and go into post-renal kidney failure. Basically, if you give somebody who's bleeding at a source higher up in their urinary tract one of these antifibrinolytics, that's the risk. It could Their ureter could clot off. It's a situation you want to avoid. So do check if patient's hematuric, but otherwise, antifibrinolytics can be a pretty helpful resource. Yeah, and just for people to know, and we, we don't endorse any brand names, but you might hear these brand names. So Lysteta is transoxemic acid that, that Dana talked about as one of the antifibrinolytics. And again, what that is doing is it's saying that if you go down the clotting cascade and now you form that fibrin meshwork, do not bust it up. It's an antifibrinolytic, meaning don't bust up the clots that are trying to be made. And if you have very low factor activities and you're trying to stop a bleed, you want to make sure that any clot that's forming is going to stay. And that particularly works well for mucosal type bleeding. And one of, so remember Lysteta for transoxemic acid. And the other one is Amicar for aminocoproic acid. Yeah, ACA and TXA for short. Well, great. Now I know all the, the cool kids lingo too about, about <laughs> those drugs. And speaking of letters and jargon, I've I've seen people do something called DDAVP. Could we talk a little bit about that? What is the role of DDAVP in the management of these patients? 
I can touch on this really briefly, and then I'll let Dan correct me any errors that I make here. So my understanding is that factor eight and von Willebrand factor are made and stored in the endothelial lining of blood vessels. And there's these things, I remember I got pimped on about von Willebrand factor as like Weeble Pilates bodies or something. I don't know, Dan, Dan can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but something like that makes those. And there's also factor eight there. And for an interesting mechanism, if you give DDAVP, you release endogenous stores of factor eight that you have. So for example, if you had a hemophilia patient who had a more mild phenotype and was still making some factor eight, you could say release all of the regular stores of factor eight that you have in your body from your endothelium by giving DDAVP. The risk of that, well, it's desmopressin, so it's it's ADH, antidiuretic hormone. So you risk having some hyponatremia and some fluid retention. So those are risks of that. And you want to make sure that that patient can actually respond to DDAVP in many cases. And there's a desmopressin challenge test that usually is used a lot more frequently when you think of a von Willebrand patient because it's the same concept. But in general, it's a way to do it. But again, if you have a severe hemophilia patient, I don't know how much bang for your buck you're going to get with that treatment. Yeah, you got it exactly right. This is essentially telling your cells to release their stores, to release what they have in the bank in terms of um, both von Willebrand's factor and factor eight. So if you do have someone who's not able to produce much of any factor, DDAVP probably isn't going to do a lot for you. Uh, but I, I'd say it does have a role for for mild hemophilia if they've proven that they they do bump their levels. And this is this touches on something that is really important we haven't mentioned yet, but almost before I do anything when I get one of these calls is I'm frantically looking for a hematologist note. Their hematologist uh, for, for hemophilia patients will have documented a lot of really important stuff, whether or not they have an inhibitor, whether or not they're on emicizumab, whether or not they stim or bump their levels with DDAVP. All of these things are super important to know when you're trying to figure out what the right path forward is in treating their acute bleed. But if they do have a documented history of bumping their levels with DDAVP, that can be something that can help get them up to speed. But oftentimes in an emergency, you're just giving them exogenous factor. And in the off chance that this patient ends up going to a hospital that for some reason doesn't have access to factor replacement, what would be alternatives? Are there blood products that we can give that can help address some of these same issues? Or, you know, what do we do? Yeah, you're getting into uh, to old school hemophilia care in some in some regards. Cryoprecipitate is something you can reach for if you're in a lot of trouble. It's uh, essentially it's a plasma derived product that is enriched for fibrinogen, factor eight, factor thirteen, von Willebrand's factor. These are the things that sort of precipitate out uh, of solution and and get concentrated when you freeze uh, fresh frozen plasma. And so it's again, it's not ideal, but if you don't have factor eight available it can help bump their levels. Got it. So cryo. And I, I, I sometimes forget this, and, and this shows up on exams all the time too. So cryo specifically, unlike FFP, contains fibrinogen, factor eight, factor 13, and von Willebrand's factor. So you can use that in super life-threatening bleeds if factor eight replacement is not available. It wouldn't really be that helpful in someone with the hemophilia B because there is no factor nine in there. And then lastly, the only other thing I wanted to remind our listeners about in situations where patients come in like this with with injuries is just normal supportive care. So if they have injury to an arm or a leg, 
the good old rice is a perfectly good option. I've learned from one of my attendings that you want to avoid heat because heat can precipitate further bleeding. So ice is often recommended for sites of pain. And then of course, for pain management itself, remembering the very simple rule we learned a long time ago that NSAIDs can also precipitate bleeding because they interfere with with clotting. And so certainly av- avoid giving these patients NSAIDs. Yeah, nothing with any antiplatelet activity. Uh, you really, you want all of the other parts of the clotting system to be working at 100%. You don't want to leave any room for error there. Well, I think I think that sounds fantastic. I, you know, in this case, just to round out our discussion, just to remind you all, the, our gentleman came in after an accident on his bike, had an injury to his back. He ultimately, because he had known that his factor eight level was less than 1%, we ended up giving him 50 units per kilogram of factor replacement, got him to 100%. He did end up getting a CT scan um, and was noted to have a pretty significant hematoma. And so he was in the hospital for a few days. Um, but, But again, what I took away from this case and what the reason I wanted to bring this case for our discussion today is just highlighting the importance of factor replacement when patients with hemophilia come in with life-threatening injuries to the emergency room. And the takeaway point that I have from, from our discussion today, minor bleeds, particularly mucosal bleeds, like maybe some menorrhagia or nose bleeding or gum bleeding, think about reaching for those antifibrinolytic agents, that Amicar, that Lystida, or the aminocoproic acid or transoxemic acid. Those are really good oral medications that can be used to treat those types of bleedings. And in other cases, we're going to, in more severe bleeds, we're going to be thinking about factor replacement. And remember, for factor eight replacement, one unit per kilogram increases the activity by 2%. And for factor nine, easy way is that it's it's one unit per kilogram increases it by the factor activity by 1%, but like Dan said, it's it's actually more like one unit per kilogram increases the activity by 0.75%. But when in doubt, just remember that one-to-one to keep things simple. And, you know, I think this is really a great discussion. Dan, do you have any, any takeaways here? Yeah, and you know, not to rely too heavily on our electronic resources here, uh, but one, don't ever hesitate to look something up if you're wondering about dosing. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be hard to scroll through our, our episode and the uh, in dealing with an acute bleed to find exactly where we talked about the dosing. But uh, also, you know, your EHR is going to help you out here. Usually their default dosing options will be 100% dose to 50% dose and, and lower doses. And so if, you, if you're ever wondering, it's like, oh, which one is, is 2 to 1 and which one's 0.75 to 1? You know, uh, if you go into right benefits, it'll usually have that 130 per kilogram and uh, a, a 65 per kilogram option. Great reminders. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.